Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Our guest on today's episode is Brad Cole, and he's here representing Canine First Responders Incorporated. Uh, Brad, welcome to the podcast. We're very excited to hear about Canine First Responders and all the other good work that you do. Uh, first, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment to introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about who you are. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very uh, pleased to be able to share our mission and our passion of what we do. Um, I'm a 60-year-old single male. Um, with my dog, Spartac- my dog Nico, my old partner Spartacus was many years with me, so I sometimes uh, uh, refer to him as well, as if he's with me. Um, I'm a private investigator focusing on white-collar crime, theft and fraud across the board. I've had the uh, wonderful experience of living all over the United States, um, traveled the full continental United States, and um, I love doing it. I love being able to go to Boston. I used to live in Boston, so I loved being there. But an hour or two outside of it, either direction, you're at the beach or you're at the uh, mountains, and it's a different world. So um, kind of stuck in the Northeast area, and uh, I enjoy it. And, you know, right now, um, just enjoying life, and especially post-COVID. The last two or three years was kind of quiet for everybody. Yeah. So it's been nice to be able to be out <laughs> and, and see people and, and give them hugs and not have to worry about much. But for me, I'm just... The average guy that, uh, you know, personally, I hope to make a difference sometime. Awesome. Um, so K-9 First Responders, your organization, and, and I think that name probably gives a few clues as to how you all deliver psychological first aid in the aftermath of a critical incident. Uh, but we're going to let you explain that to the audience. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization? The organization developed on the ground out of the need during Sandy Hook to be able to connect and engage with the first responders, the teachers, and the children who were impacted by that event, and actually the whole community overall. And my uh, old partner and friend Spartacus and I were a therapy dog team at Yale New Haven Hospital, and we had full privileges there. And uh, I used to be on the job myself um, up in the Boston, general Boston area, and through my private sector training, I was crisis management trained. And, and so I showed up and I introduced myself to the uh, crisis intervention teams. And uh, I showed my Yale credentials saying, hey, look, I'm not a Yahoo. They did not send me here, but I'm here to help if you'd like um, to use us. And the team never really thought of it at all. They were like, 
yeah, we never thought of this. And so I started working and very, very quickly, the clinicians were what were in a separate classroom, so to speak. Um, and they didn't know what to say to these children and people. They had not experienced this level of trauma or type of trauma. Yeah. So they would buy time by using the dog. We'd sit there and very quickly we learned that children and adults alike will share things to a dog or just talking in general with the dog present when otherwise they would not. There were children that were nonverbal that were coloring in the, in the playroom and would all of a sudden start talking about their experiences. Wow. Um, I remember one, one of the counselors, um, um, that had done the death notifications. We saw her first thing in the morning. She was white and she just sat there and pet Spargus for like an hour, hour and a half and just talking. So, you know, I just wanted to help our, my neighbor. I lived in Southbury at that time and, uh, which is just right next door to Sandy Hook. And, um, kind of very, very quickly, I brought them in some other teams from Yale New Haven who are like-minded and we, started to provide services and helping the clinicians do their job. Wow. Um, you, you mentioned that you were on the job. Are you prior law enforcement? Is I was a special the... police officer in Somerville, Mass., and in Citroën, Mass. Okay, excellent. So, Brad, can I get into that a little bit? Like you said, this is how um, canine first responders came about initially for because of Sandy Hook, high, um, the school, um, dealing with kids, and I know the your organization is a, has been deployed in many, many different critical incidents around the country. Do you want to share with us some of those, and then we can start to get into those a little bit differently, explain, I mean, for our listeners who are, are, are listening in, like, is there a different plan um, when you're deployed into a different, into different situations. Can you, can you go into that a little bit with us? Explain that. Yeah. If I may, let me take a step back for the listeners to explain what we do and who we are. We're actually yeah. have a definition of the services we provide. Yeah. We're an all hazard psychological trauma response agency that is trauma informed. And we're designed to work during an incident and moving forward from that particular point. Trauma happens at hour zero. And Steve Cremando coined the term zero hour behavioral health management. And so how do you connect and engage with someone who's experiencing trauma? The old traditional means of mental health used to come into the recovery phase of an operation, not in, not in the response phase, but trauma happens then. So our model's built upon that. So we can be competent to interact with people. And we also want to be culturally competent. And you know, as we know, mm. we joke around, the police culture is different than fire and EMS and corrections. I see a smile over there, sir, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, their lives are different. The pattern to their day, the rhythm to the day is different. The best time to catch someone on EMS is a shift change or go ride with them. Same thing with, with the police officer. But with fire service, once they check their equipment, you may catch them at breakfast. 
or corrections, you may catch them at shift change or when they're coming off shift and talking to them. So you have to understand the culture that you're, you're dealing with and you're supporting. And then more importantly is we recognize at Sandy Hook that the services we provide are based upon the needs of those we serve and from their optic. Mm. Some people will see a trauma and not be impacted. You and I might be like, how can you survive that? And there'll be other people highly impacted. Mm. A sociologist, uh, Kurt Lewin, has even a formula for it. It says behavior is a function of personal experiences and external factors. Well, we know the external factors of a critical incident, but we don't know the personal experiences of everybody involved there. Mm. As the kids like to say, kids like to say, you know my name, but you don't know my story. Mm. So we have to keep all that in mind when we're servicing those. So when we talk about, to get to your question of, of how we go about it, we identify the culture of the, of the department or agency that's asking our assistance and trying to understand the best we can. For example, you know, we, we provide support after the Boston Marathon. Um, we're underneath the Boston Public Health Commission in their office. Um, so we provide a lot of support for community because Boston has fantastic peer support with fire and police. Um, so we did a lot of community support and we kept that support through the years. Um, the employees of Marathon Sports, who are obviously right by one of the bombing sites. Every year we go back and we see them. We spend time with them because, and oftentimes in a tragedy, especially large ones, um, so many resources come running in, flooding in. Therapy dogs, oh, no, we don't need any dogs to pet. Thank you very much. Um, and so that's our best, big first hurdle to get over. And it happened in Las Vegas that one of our team members in Orlando, her husband played hockey with the union president of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. I happened to be on a conference call and I said, Jackie, why are you on the phone with me when you just told me this information? I'll call you back, she said. And so the union president said, get your teams out here. He had heard of us because of, of his knowledge through uh, her husband and trusted us. We landed and um, we worked hand in hand with the Las Vegas Fire Rescue Peer Support, also with AMR. And then afterwards with uh, Metro Metro PD. Wow. Um, and a lot of it is uh, we're out in Las Vegas three times in one year providing continued support. Um, and sometimes um, when we're out there, their, their critical incident team and their peer team was absolutely just overwhelmed. And so we're about there about the third or fourth day out. And they said, look, we need to take 24 hours, 36 hours downtime. Can you run with this? I said, we've got you covered. We know your number if you need it, if we need anything. We continued their efforts in the style that they wanted. So they get a little breather. And we kept their, our eyes on them as well and to make mm -hmm. sure that they're doing okay because we have to watch each other's back. And so in Las Vegas, for example, we went back at the 90-day mark, which happened to be New Year's Eve operations. And so that was a Sierra 1 event. You had everyone activated. And I was with the arson and bomb techs for a couple of days because they were just absolutely re-aroused again because of the status of everything going on. Mm. And so word of that had, had expanded down to, uh, to uh, Parkland and actually the communications division down in Parkland, um, or actually Coral Springs, excuse, excuse me, called us down. 
And so we worked with their fire and police departments. And then naturally, because of the geographic uh, commonalities, we worked with uh, Broward County sheriffs as well. Um, and we had uh, the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. Um, the We do a lot of work with corrections in, in the state of Connecticut. And the corrections commissioner for Pennsylvania, I knew from before, and he called the chief of uh, Pittsburgh Police Services and said, you know, you need to get these guys down there. He's like, okay, come on down. And we worked with them uh, for several days in their various um, divisions. And you talk about cultural competency in different events, Linda, would be. Yeah. Las Vegas was a community hit. But also you had first responders who were not used to being targets. Yeah. They didn't know where the bullets were being shot from. Yeah. They weren't used to being targets. EMTs trying to save people also try to dodge bullets. It was a different feeling. But in the tree of life, um, the the Squirrel Hill community is very tight-knit, and they close ranks quickly. I don't mean that in an, any sort of negative way. They relied upon support from each other as a community. Yeah. But the police officers, um, we worked with, I think it was Zone 5 for them. And, um, you know, when we went to the debrief, we were told, you know, we don't need dogs here. It's all right. You can just kind of hang out on the street or the hallway. And word got around very, very quickly that the dogs were there. And if I remember correctly, um, you know, when a, when a, there's a, a voluntary, so to speak, a voluntold um, um, debriefing, and some of the SWAT members might show up, might not. They expected maybe three or four. By the end of the meeting, they had close to 45 there that were petting um, K-9 Clarence, who's also a Greenfield Mass uh, police officer dog, K-9 at that point, and he's passed uh, us at that time. But it made a difference. We went through the zones and worked with command staff, and they now have a couple of their own dogs in their peer support program wow. uh, as an extra resource for their people. But again, it's a, different, it's a different dynamic. They had a very good peer support program. Las Vegas did as well, um, the U.S. Capitol. Um, they had a part-time 20-hour-a-week wellness officer for 2,000 officers. And so... Oh, my goodness. Uh, one? This was something... One part-time officer? One. Wow. Yeah. And um, a, a group of people were invited in, different peer support teams and our teams, and we sat down and we kind of worked with each other and crossed paths and we did our thing, and um, it went very, very well. But that dynamic was very political. Yeah. A lot of anger for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Again, we, our main job for the first, probably the first trip, we went down uh, three times one year down there, was to bear witness and listen and validate. Yeah. And oftentimes, and I'm the first one to violate this rule six different ways from Sunday. First responders, we want to help people. We want to take action. We want to do something. Sometimes sitting and listening to a person who's in emotional pain and just let them vent is very difficult because you want to help them. And um, so this is what we call bearing witness. Yeah, so in bearing witness, it's very, very difficult because we as first responders are more geared as to do action, to help. And sometimes inaction and bearing witness is the best help you can give at that particular moment. Linda, you asked about timeframes. 
when we're on a scene that's developing or still emotionally charged, a traumatized person is not going to listen to what we say. Mm. They're not going to process it. Or yeah. if they do, they won't retain it as much. And so, but bearing witness and establishing that con that connection and engagement by sharing the same space builds the foundation to when we go back and talk with them and see how they're doing to be able to share information. Uh. And it's not, it's not, it's not like, Oh, here, we want to share this information. You'll be better. We'll ask. May we share something with you that we've learned through the years? Because we want them to start assuming control of their lives. When a person has been traumatized, especially in those type of events, control is taken away from them. And that very, I don't know if it's subconsciously, but it's very prevalent in their actions. Um, and so we want to give them control back. We want to make them feel, you know, if they come into a crisis intervention center, Food's over there, bathroom's over there, water and Gatorade's over there. We don't go get them. We let them take it if they want. Yeah. Little small steps. And the same thing with information yeah. that we do. And um, But there's cultural differences both amongst people and jobs and agencies. Um, and, and how to navigate that. There was um, Washington, D.C., those events were constantly going. There was there wasn't any clear bookends to an event, and that makes it more difficult for people to process. If there's a beginning and an end, we could do this. An explosion, an airplane crash, for processing wise, is easier for a person to do than COVID nineteen, because there's no beginning or end to COVID nineteen. Yeah. yeah. And different people deal with the stresses differently, so. Um, and, and we acknowledge that in what in what we do, but the the and the services that we provide are again for the optic of those we serve. Um, our dogs are not crisis dogs; they're not therapy dogs; they're not um, anything along those lines. Because I'm sure all of us know someone who's been on the job who's crusty, and mm. will look at you and say, "I'm so messed up; I need a therapy dog." Yeah. We don't want that just in the back of their mind, even if they don't express it. Crisis dogs, same thing. Comfort dogs do provide comfort, but since we're more of a proactive agency, when I was forming the name of the agency and, and the specification for the dog, it was I came up with canine first responders. Canines and their first responders. Simple, could be understood by everybody. And I, I knew I was onto something about six, some months or a year after I formed the organization. We're at a high school. And um, a, a father um, killed his son and killed himself. And, the, and the, obviously the school was quite upset. And I think it was a junior, a uh, sophomore junior, two young boys were talking to each other and said, oh, they're therapy dogs. And the kid said, no, they're canine first responders. He goes, goes what, what do you mean? He says, first responders, they're there to help. Mm -hmm. They come to help and they're canines. That just gave me all the affirmation I needed that I made the right choice. Um, we are, um, so when we present everything we do, we're lightly uniformed. So it looks like we belong someplace, but we're not so heavily regimented that it builds a barrier 
whether yeah. consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. Um, our, our operations model is very similar to EMS or fire. We are dispatched by a public safety access point. Mm-hmm. We have all our own digital radios, our own radio channels. We have our own medics that go with us if we need to on larger events, or we have on-site medical care for our dogs if we need to. Um, our partners like JetBlue, we have established protocols with them to fly. Um, um, and we and we do it in everything in a little bit different way. So if we're invited on scene, it's not people showing up with dogs. We're crisis support intervention personnel with dogs as partners. And we're used as an active resource. Um, therapy dogs, and I've worked the therapy dog world for many years, and comfort dogs are wonderful, wonderful th- dogs, and they bring so many much so many smiles. But to connect and engage with someone during a time of crisis is very difficult. So you, being passive doesn't necessarily work. But being active with the dog, just kind of walking up. Um, there's a, a bomb scene, for lack of a better term. It's actually a very complicated, but it had to be a bomb scene. The whole street was blown up. Mm-hmm. We walked up to uh, a chief of the uh, police department his deputy and we had he had every agency in the book he had task force one out he had everyone out there and they just started petting spartacus and we had a little dog of ours named gizmo who's a three and a half pound mickey that does just the same thing as, as uh our dog you know our dogs uh, the bigger dogs do and they just held the dog and petted the dog you know yeah and meanwhile we're going through our protocols we're training in psychological first aid cricklets and stress management psychological trauma and stress management um, a tactical psychological first aid, a whole bunch of other things, so we can better serve those during a variety of times with the different protocols. So that's what makes us different. We look, we're proactive, number one, and two, everything we do is designed from those we serve. We Our dogs have social media cards, but not for the fact to promote the dogs. I want to stay connected and engaged, but we don't take names. We don't charge. We don't take notes. So how can I stay engaged with somebody? If they need help, they know they have a lifeline out. It's through the, through the uh, social media of the dogs. Oh my goodness. That has happened. That has happened more, more times. I care, care to admit where people have bypassed traditional um, 911, 311 support and have called our teams and we've sat there and we've worked and we got them the care that they needed. And so all these things, you know, t- together um, is what our service is about. And, you know, we, we take confidentiality very seriously. If I, if um, l- last night I was on a debrief and we said, Hey, we see you on the street, we will not acknowledge you. If you choose to acknowledge us, that's fine. Otherwise, we don't know you. And um, we take that very seriously because people, the, the dogs provide a safe space for people to talk. And it may be, you know, keep in mind that uh, a Sandy Hook, a Boston Marathon, a Parkland, Vegas, um, U.S. Capitol, that may not traumatize a person but may trigger a past trauma. Yeah. So it's not uncommon for that to come out. And it comes out with the dogs there. 
And so our teams are trained to be able to, de- to deal with that and support the person. And we have about a third public safety, a third clinicians, and a third educators. Um, and so our teams go through specific training. How do you work with a, a, a tween, a 10-year-old, a, an 18-year-old, a college student, to the 65-year-old crusty public information officer that is just totally overwhelmed and is getting to the point of just being shut down? Yeah. So there's many different ways to do that. So your team are trained in all those different um, cultures, so to speak, um, to be able to go yep. in there. And we're provide. also trained in several, and we're also trained in several FEMA protocols because, you know, it may not be a public safety agency that calls us. It may be a mayor of a city that calls us in to support the community at a time of need. So we know how to, uh, you know, we're, we're classified as a strike force within FEMA and uh, we work with them and, I, and we've actually presented to them and teach them at times. Wow. So can I, can I ask you, like when, when you're called out, um, obviously these are big organizations that are calling you, especially like for big incidents, right? How did I get, how did I get to know you? Is that like, how did they initially get to know where you are, who you are, where your organization is about? Like, how did you do that? Um, quite honestly, something very scary. <laughs> Las Vegas, for example, they heard of what we did, and the union president said, I need all the help I can get. Get your butts out here. He's a little bit more direct than that. And he said to Hail Mary, and he said, you know, uh, Lauren, my, my Orlando team's husband, said you're good, so go do what you do. Wow. U.S. Capitol, same thing. Um, you know, agencies in the Northeast know us, and so we've established the name of ourselves. And, and through show, and through education and through podcasts and through public speaking, um, um, people have become to, to know us. But it's, it's some of the incidents have been, we hear you're good, go do what you do. And that's kind of scary because I would more than I'd rather drive 300 miles, spend an afternoon, have a cup of coffee, introduce me to your organization. So if something does hit the fan, you're not answering a whole bunch of questions in your own mind. You already know who we are. You know, our protocols, you have this little folder, whether digitally or in your hand that I give you. And um, you tell us who do you want us to serve and where do you want us to put our operations? Yeah. And so, you know, opportunities like this just to raise awareness. Um, there are other organizations that do great, great work, um, but they're more in the response of, of the passive side. Our, our teams have gone out where clinicians have not been successful for whatever the reason mm. and said, can you go talk to this person? Mm. And we go out with the dog and sit and go, hey, how you doing? Can right. we hang out for a little bit and talk for, you know, two, three hours with that person? Make, again, that connection and engagement. Yeah. We're doing it proactively, and we're using the dog as a tool, as leverage. And we have different breeds of dogs. We have Gizmo and uh, Gadget, who are three-and-a-half-pound Meekies. And outside of the work that Gizmo and Gadget does, they're on the um, United Way um, Young Kids Suicide Prevention Handbook and are nationally uh, known with that. Clarence, who's no longer with us, was with us at the U.S. Capitol. Um, he's also a a, um, a movie and ad dog. So you'd see him in several movies or ad- advertisements across the board, um, you know, as well. 
We have other dogs that do fantastic work in their community under therapy dog work. And um, so, but it's, it's a, we select from different types of dogs. It could be, I remember when we got on JetBlue to go out to Las Vegas, uh, Spartacus weighed 125 pounds. Clarence, who's a St. Bernard, weighed 165. We're in the first class section and people walk, stop and go, that's a, that's even a bigger, and they just be looking and going, there are two huge dogs in this plane. <laughs> um, and just by That's the awesome. mere fact of what's going on. But the one thing I do want to give a shout out and recognize to the um, Cap- U.S. Capitol Police is that um, K-9 Clarence and um, um, one of our other K-9s passed away. And um, they flew a flag over the U.S. Capitol specifically for them on each, on each day. And then they presented it to each handler in memory of their dogs. Wow. And so they were very, very honored with that. And I, rem- I think one of the quotes, one of the senators um, who was petting Clarence said to another colleague, he said, yesterday, this was the people's house. Today, this is Clarence's house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, we, we treasure that. And yeah. we often don't know the impact that dogs make. Um, you know, we, we don't, like I said, we don't take names. We, we don't seek press per se. Yeah. Um, you will never see, you will never see us, um, being interviewed while we're doing an initial scene or initial activation. If we're going back two or three or four times and the fire department, police department, whatever agency wants to be able to say, Hey, look, this is what we're doing for our community. This is what we're doing for our officers, but we won't go seek out a, a news crew and say, Hey, look, we're down here helping. Are you interested in a story? Yeah. Because once again, if someone sees us on the news, do you think someone might think, oh, they're only down here for the media aspect? Possibly. We don't want that. We don't want to take the chance of that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why I asked you, like, how do people find out about Because I have never seen, you know, in any of incidents, you guys with dogs around on the TV, or any of the news channels everywhere. So that's why, like, how, how do people find you? Um, but obviously, the big you know, organizations do find you. <laughs> The big ones, I mean, we also network we use, for example, um, um, you know, say that Boston has some great peer support with their fire, fire EMS and police departments. Um, and so when the South Shore incident happened um, and the shooting down there, um, I, if I remember correctly, they had uh, reached out to Boston and Boston said, hey, look, uh, the public health said, look, we have these dog teams. Can we come on in? Mm-hmm. And so... You know, we, we visited, we worked uh, for a while. Uh, we worked the wake and the funeral as well. Yeah. And as you know, Linda, we, we, we keep some friendships and we make sure. Yeah. One of the things we do is that trauma is on a continuum. And we just don't leave. We'll stay in touch. We'll come up for wakes, memorials, for anniversaries. Yeah. Um, and just touch base. And you are spoken very highly of um, by one of the friendships um, when you did come up to the South Shore um, for that shooting incident a, a few years ago. Are your organization based in one location or are you distributed throughout the country to make for easy deployment? We're, distri- we're, dis- we're distributed out along the East Coast, mostly in the Northeast, but we have teams down in Delaware, Philadelphia, and Florida as well. Um, and so we're administratively based out of Milford, Connecticut. Um, but, um, we leverage, um, communications. We started the work from home before everyone else worked from home, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
we and you know it's it's one of the downfalls is is that it's difficult getting everyone together and for like a team meeting or a team dinner and just say hey we miss you guys yeah you know um I mean, because it's just everyone has their own lives. They're doing the therapy dog work. A lot of them, never mind their day jobs. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm very proud of of the teams. They they have are very passionate about what they do, um, and when they're needed, they they put their personal lives on hold, and they um, provide a service. And again, we don't send surveys out. How are we doing? You know. So we. We have no idea if we will know if we made a mistake mm -hmm. just by the reaction the person has done. Um, but there will be times where there was a Connecticut State Trooper Miller that died um, on duty. His car hit the back end of an 18-wheeler. We, we happened to have one of our teams in the school when the children were picked up and notified. We happened to have um, other teams that at, at critical points and we were asked by the family to be for the wake and the funeral. And so we had uh, especially trained dogs with children with the kids, his young kids, all day at the wake and all day at the funeral and spent time with them. And we use Wrenchler Field, there's a large turnout as expected. And so that was, I think in May, a few years ago. July 4th weekend, we do operations in the city of Boston. We're proactively deployed up there. And so if something happens, we can be boots on the ground versus having to fight all the traffic to come in. And uh, I was in a restaurant and a trooper comes up to me. He goes, sir, were you at Officer Miller's services? I go, yes, sir. He said, you have no idea what you guys did for us. Oh, wow. I nodded my head. I shook his hand. I said, thank you. Wow. You know, um, uh, Boston Marathon bombing. Um, at the one-year anniversary, I was buying Marathon on Sports, and a couple ladies came up and they said, "You came back." Once I once I felt terrible because we see so many people. They were indistinguishable amongst others, and they said, "Thank you for coming back. It means so much." And they started crying and giving us hugs. Wow. So you just so have to show up. They, they, don't, they don't even know that you're coming, that you just show up? They, they, they know. They have enough on their plates. to. We're not going to schedule. They know we'll be there. It's, it's kind of like uh, Alumni Weekend where you know some people are going to keep being there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The city of Boston knows we're there, and we coordinate our efforts with them. Um, and so, but, um, you know, but like for Las Vegas or for other, other towns, um, when we go back, um, yeah, they know because we, we coordinate with them. Um, our protocols for the anniversaries, we go 10 days early because a lot of people are going to be taking time off. They don't want to even be in the city, in the place that they're doing. Yeah. You know, our mutual friend um, did not want to be there. So I went to where they were for the day. Oh, wow. Um, and... Um, you know, so it's it's an approach that we do just differently because we understand and we continue to learn and grow. You know, for example, um, you know, there's been a wonderful explosion of comfort dogs being used by public safety agencies. And there, a lot of them are being donated by service dog companies. And that's fantastic for their community service, the community resources, and for the schools. But depending upon the dog, they're trained as a service dog, so their focus is on the handler. Yeah. 
our dogs focus have to be on the ones that we serve. And so we have to, you know, when we screen uh, potential volunteers, we look at that. Can the dog interact with someone else? Yeah. You know, regular therapy dog work, that is fantastic. Here, be given a treat. But if someone's really impacted and is crusty enough saying, I'm so messed up, you have to feed the dog to pay attention to me. Yeah. We don't even want to go down that road. Yeah. And I see, I see you nodding there. And, and so it's, it's the little things that we've, we've learned through that. But I think, you know, um, we've, um, do you, Brett, Brad, any place I, that there's trauma, we go, go, go ahead, Linda. Sorry. Can it, do you find that when you're going back to, you know, follow up anniversaries, three month, nine month, um, year anniversary whatever the dates that you go back i love that you do that how do you keep track of all of that like from so many incidents that you do um you know deploy to how do you keep track of all mm -hmm. of that and and as you said i don't take name we don't take names but how do you keep track of like even the the, the people that the dogs have interacted with you know and and helped with and also, one more question to add to that. Do you find that when you do go back, that there's a little bit more open opening up from the individual who you who you interacted with previously? The dogs meaning. Okay. Yeah, so the first the first question is my Google Calendar is my friend. So anniversary dates, everything like that gets put on a Google Calendar. So you do that. You uh, do all of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. But by year three, hopefully people have moved on with their lives in a positive direction. The, in Sandy Hook, there was a, a girl who, um, I'm sharing this because it is public knowledge, yeah. that um, was impacted and the family asked me to do a home visit. We did a couple of home visits and I looked at this girl and I said, hey, would you like to go outside with Nico? He needs to go for a walk. You want to go for a walk with me? And the girl's father gave me a look like, I'm like, oh, God, what did I just say? And the girl's mother said, yeah, I think it would be a good idea. I didn't realize it because I try not to get too much into it. They were neighbors with Adam Lanza, who lived across the street. Mm. This child had not been outside since that had occurred. And the father was just being very protective of his daughter. And and so on the first anniversary, the calls back, second anniversary. But by year three, this child was was living life and moving forward. Wow. And so why miss visiting that child and their family? It's a sign of healing. Yeah. And so it really depends. I mean, some some people um we keep connected and, and we, and we stay current, both we were introduced because of an incident, but we stay in people's lives because they want us in their lives as friends, as colleagues. Um, you know, there'll be people we've spoken to that I want to call. I will not call on their birthdays. They will not call me on their birthdays or even Christmas cards. Yeah. But if something hits the wall or the fan, they'll be like, where are you now? We need you here now. Yeah. They That's know fine because too. sometimes, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's not needed. It's, it's, I was a moment there to be a bridge 
with my dog and with our other teammates to go from point A to point B to point C to what I call point H, healing. Uh, I love that. Me too. Um, do a lot of these interactions, if, if we're talking about the zero-hour behavioral model, so um, I'm picturing mm-hmm. uh, on scene at a critical incident, there's you know a command structure there, et cetera. Where do those interactions take place? Do you take the responders or the family members, whoever you're dealing with, away from the scene? Is there a, an area selected within that command structure? Where does that happen? It really, it, it's, it's, very, it's very fluid. Going back, and I, I might take a little detour to get back to, the, to directly to your answer. After Sandy Hook, Parkland, Vegas, et cetera, uh, the NFP, National Fire Protection Agency, got a whole bunch of agencies, police, fire, EMS together to discuss best practices. And one of the things they came out with was called the ASHER standard, the Active Shooter Hostile Event Response Standard. They include crisis mental health as part of the incident command structure hmm. and say it's it's part of your response. It's not an afterthought. With that in mind, a lot of departments we work with, um, it depends upon the model of, of what we do. They're like the Connecticut Department of Corrections. We're on their incident team. So we're arriving, we go out with them and we arrive on scene. There are other places where I was called out. Um, there was a police officer's wife that took his firearm and killed herself. Mm. And she said, hey, why don't you have, go have the kids go get ice cream? And that happened. And I got a call from the assistant chief because he was so concerned for his people. When I got down there, it was quite evident because you had the family very upset that the wife got the husband's service firearm. Yeah. And so we worked between the two of those. Um, where we can be applied at that, it, it varies upon scene. It's, um, we got called into a prison takeover seven years ago or so at JT Vaughn uh, in Delaware. Um, it was a 18 hour siege hostage taking and one CO was killed. Um, a lot of agencies don't use us. So they say, where do you need to go? Or what do you want to do? Or more appropriately, you tell us where you're going or this say, do what you do. Say, by the way, here's where we're going here. And now we use our judgment. We went to all the facilities. We went around the clock. Um, to talk to people, we met um, staff outside in our hotel, and then we end up traveling around the state because their CERT team, which is equivalent to law enforcement SWAT team, um, were highly impacted. And wow. so we went down and did a debrief with with them. So it's very it's very situationally um, um, different. Um, you know, you have, and it also depends on the, on the agency that calls us. Up in Boston, for example, you had both runners. The association and volunteers and employees, you mm-hmm. obviously had public safety impacted. But one thing that, that was kind of forgotten about initially were all the workers along that route, marathon sports, the, the other employees. They went back to their homes in Dorchester and Roxbury and Mattapan, kind of fluid. Um, I wish I could give you a more of a concrete answer to that. We like to have guidance from our partners to say, where's the need? We try to stay focused with the need. Um, on those because we don't want our dogs to get burnt out. We have rotation schedules for our dogs. Uh, we have downtime for our own personnel. 
when we roll, we also have non-dog handlers handling operations behind the scenes and also watching our mental levels, stress levels yeah. to see we're doing okay. I don't care if I'm the executive director of the organization. If my ops person taps me on the shoulder and says, okay, time to tap out, I have to tap out. I was just going to... seeing something yeah. I'm not seeing on myself. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Like, what do you guys do for your own self-care? Like, how how do you be able to manage that to unload all the stuff that you're taking in um, with each deployment, you know, with each activation that you're at? How do you, how do you unload? We have our own, our own clinicians. So, so there's always one clinician that's available either on-site or by phone that's not working the operation. Yeah. Um, and their job is to check, check us. And we also... We take very seriously practicing what we preach, and um, it's because we know we have to. We have to, if if we're if we're not able to help be in a condition to help somebody, that leaves a big hole for the services that we provide and to the people we provide. So we check in on each other. We do daily mini debriefs, sitting over at dinner and maybe a glass of wine um, or two, but. Uh, <laughs> I, or a mixed drink of choice. Um, but what, when we're, especially when we're traveling, our travel partners are fantastic. The hotels that we're with, uh, whatever, uh, they know why we're there. They create space for us so we can have our own areas that, and confidentially be able to talk and debrief um, and be able to unwind and set the plans for, uh, you know, the next day. And, and for my set, most of the stress comes from operational. And for example, in Las Vegas, uh, the second day we were there, our operational plan changed three times during breakfast. Wow. Wow. Oh, okay. You know, it's kind of like, okay. And, you know, um, I'm the one that makes the travel arrangements. I'm the one that books the hotels. I'm the one that makes sure we have transportation to and from. Where's our operating area? What are the things we have to work out through, et cetera? Um, and so it gets... And on a stress level, that's where my my stress comes from. But we try to make sure all the volunteers, we don't stay in five-star hotels, um, but we'll stay in, in very comfortable business class hotels. Uh, I make sure everyone eats well. And if they want a, a nice meal, they have a nice meal. Our nonprofit yeah. pays for it um, because they need to be in good shape. Yeah, absolutely. And having mentioned that your nonprofit um, means that you go out there, uh, that's no cost to the organize or the 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 this the people who are are asking you to come out on scene. How do you get yep. funded? Like who funds it? Who funds you? Well, we we will. I will have no problem going up to say a corporation in the area or community that we're serving, saying, "Hi, I'm introducing myself. We're a nonprofit. If you like to contribute to your community's healing, please, please donate." There are other groups. Um, um, there is an organization out in in California that saw what we did in at the U.S. Capitol. And they very low-key, and they wanted low-key, um, sent us a check. And I talked to Deputy Chief Gordon. I'm like, did anyone talk to you? He goes, yeah, some, someone from California called me. They sent us a check for $15,000. Wow. I'm kind of like, and wrote a very nice thank you note, and they, but they wanted it to just you know be low-key. Um, but the other organizations like the Brantford Fire Department Connect is doing a fundraiser for us over the next few months. Um, it really depends. We don't use the traditional roots of fundraising where you say, oh, you're a therapy dog organization. Oh, why don't you go to Petco? Why don't you go to this? Yeah. Um, 
because there's so many worthy charities that go that route and we're not therapy dogs. So yeah, we look at the charitable model of the community and the corporations of the community we serve. The, the um, New England Patriots um, are, are nice supporters, wonderful supporters of ours. And, um, you know, we have um, Highgate um, Properties, which owns many upscale hotels. One was the Boston Park Plaza. We operate all our operations out of there. Um, they're great supporters. If we ever need to stay in town for a deployment or activation, they got to have us covered. Um, their hotel staff there treats us like family. All wow. of our teams that go in. That's awesome. Uh, um, and it is and because it's very important for the team members to feel wherever they are that they're, they're comfortable. They don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about lodging. They, and when we try to get places where they can walk the dog, unwind. Yeah. Um, but did that answer your question? Yes, you did. I have another question. The dogs, all the dogs that you have, all the canines that you have, are they are they um, owned and um, how would you say all their medical needs, all their care is that all provided by the organization, or are they owned by individuals who who are members? They're of the owned org- by individuals. Okay. Yeah, they're owned by individuals and they may be doing therapy dog work. They may not be doing therapy dog work, whatever they do in their private lives. And it's the handlers who have been evaluated and the dogs who have been evaluated that when they are deployed, if anything happens to a person or an animal, the nonprofit covers 100%. But for the normal everyday functional life, um, our dogs are our friends and our buddies when we wake up in the morning and when we go to bed at night. We share them with the public in between. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I think it's very interesting, um, the, the gap that, that you're bridging the service that's provided. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about critical incident stress and trauma and how, uh, you know, the broad range or groups of people that, that are impacted by that. And I don't know that I've heard anybody else talk about serving those various groups, like to think about uh, the children of a first responder or, or an incident and um, your ability to go in there with an animal and um, and the different level of reception that that I imagine you get and it sounds uh, it sounds like you get do you do you find this work rewarding I understand it's you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with heavy stuff but do you find the work rewarding I do it's rewarding but it's not that we take satisfaction that I did a good thing today. Mm-hmm. It's more of a question is, I think all our volunteers after a day is, I hope I did a good thing. Yeah. We hope we, we could be a, be of service. We're only as good as the last person we interacted with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's tough. It's fluid. You know, trauma has many different looks to it. Mm. but also many different reactions to it for the, uh, those members of service that are listening here. We want to be known to your agencies before sometimes something happens like this, because when it does, you're not going to have time to think. Um, we had up in Massachusetts, we had just had a meeting with mass DOC and brought one of our dogs up and about supporting them. And not more than a few days later, they had an incident at, at a facility. 
I'm on the phone with one of their peer support teams going, hi, do you remember the meeting we just had? Oh my God, we didn't think of it. And we went up mm. um, and they, they were not really expecting it to be too receptive with staff. They're thinking through the week, maybe even five, six people. If I recall correctly, they saw over 60 people. Wow. And a warden who said, I don't want, and this is his quote, I don't want a dom, damn dog in my facility. Called up later and said, when's the dog coming in? Wow. And the employees, employee assistance unit up there now has two dogs. <laughs> two great dogs. One's a French bulldog. And he's a fantastic uh, dog. And But they've utilized that. So it's, um, but the, you know, to get back, focus back to your question, we, we hope we do well. Yeah. And we hope we leave our time with the person in a, in a better place. But those are listening. If, if this is something that interests you, um, please reach out and be able to um, ask for some information. We can even do a zoom call or if you're somewhere in the Northeast, get together for a cup of coffee and have a name and voice and connect together because if something happens, you're not going to have that time to um, worry about who I am. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that you're saying that Brad, um, because you know, again, being proactive, right, rather than being reactive, um, a lot of agencies, you know, if they if they don't know that, especially like, just say locally, even on the South Shore here, right, out of Massachusetts, um, you know, if they don't know, you know, about you guys, you know, and we're hoping that they are, they're going to hear from about you now t when when we air your episode. Um, they're going to know all about you and they're going to take note of that and be able to reach out to you and, and have you uh, on their books, you know, to say, mm, he's in my back pocket for just in case something happens. And that's just like even for like a local fire department that maybe doesn't in numerous towns that had to be involved in a fire. Um, and then, you know, there was a lot of stress on, on the firefighters and the department and they might need some help um, debriefing. Um and also from long term, a lot of those guys hold that stuff in, and um, and then sort of you know we we feel there is some movement with stigma, right? And and smashing the stigma in first response, um, but there still is so much more improvement that needs to happen, um, especially with with suicide, mm -hmm. right? And um, and and that's why we're here. That's why we're talking is because. We want to lessen the stigma so that it makes talking about these things that they go through or hold on to every day and that they see every day. As we talked about in a previous podcast, Jay, you know, what they see every day is, is not normal. Um, and, you know, what they hold what, on to. And what the dog provide, provide is, is, a, is a pathway for that conversation for some people. Yeah. Um, when Spargus passed away, you know, um, People said, oh, are you going to really miss him for the work that he did, et cetera? As I used the phrase earlier, when he woke up in the morning, he was my buddy. When we went to bed at night, he was my buddy. He was on loan in between at those points. And I had two different members of service reach out to me. And um, one I recalled specifically, the other not immediately. I eventually did. And they said, uh, we were going to commit suicide. You guys changed that. Wow. I had no idea. One, one, maybe. The other one, no. I had no idea of, of uh, you know, that they were even contemplating. But the fact that we were able to be there at the right place, right time, and to lend an ear 
whether it be a dog ear or a human ear, um, you know, with that, um, uh, was important enough for those people that made a difference. Yeah. And I'm glad it did. But the one cautionary tale I would like your listeners to understand is with the many comfort dogs that are being given to departments, it's fantastic. But as with any tool, you have to know how to use it. You have to know when to use it. But also, you have to have backup. Fire service has their canteen trucks, and they have support. You can burn out a dog very quickly, number one. Or two, you can have an unintended consequence through a department being proud or being siloed. An example, and this is a hypothetical, um, a fire department has the dog for their personnel to provide support. There are a couple of young girls impacted by this. And they want to see the dog. Okay. Department may let them see the dog, but is that person qualified or trained to work with that child or be prepared with what that child may be saying to them during the course of that interaction? Number one. Number two, what if the dog and the handler are away on vacation? What are the backups? What are the rotations? Who's your animal clinician and behaviorist? Never mm -hmm. mind who's your, your human clinical oversight as well. So it's important to be able to have a system in place. The dog is a great concept, but the dog has to be available. They have to know how to use the dog in the proper manner to further healing and to make sure, and most importantly, not hurt the dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, right? Yep, uh, it is. And, you know, people, even even our own clinicians at first, when they joined us and liked the concept, when they saw our teams working a debrief, were like, I knew what you guys did, but no, I didn't know what you guys did. Mm. And it was kind of that seeing as believing type of situation. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that is is a wonderful transition. And, you know, with the dogs, we're able to make inroads and and call it the way we see it because yeah. sometimes being gently direct with the person is more needed than tap dancing around the issue. I know that you said you don't keep um, any, any stats or info, um, you know, but if, if feedback is, is a measure of success, it, it sounds like you guys are having plenty of success. That was, um, you know, I mean, it sounds like you you intervened or, or had some influence um, over somebody's suicidal uh, considerations. That, I mean, we talked about whether or not this was something that was rewarding to you. I, I imagine that must have been must have been very uh, very rewarding. It has been so interesting hearing about the work that you do, your organization. How do people get in touch with you um, if they're looking to bring you into well, a department? We, we have for free we have a. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, they can go to our K, our website, which is the letter K, the number nine, fr.org, the acronym K9FirstResponders.org. All the contact information is there. We also have our social media uh, accounts. If someone wants to reach out through those, those all come back in. Um, and But, you know, email the contact page is best uh, to come through. And I'll get back in, in touch with you, and we'll go from there. Just on a couple of admin notes, we are fully insured. We are RRS 501C3. 
Um, and so for that aspect, if we get called out, uh, we're fully insured, both as dog handling and, and as well as social service writer on our uh, coverage. Excellent. Brad, I I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to come on and speak with myself and Jay um, this evening. What a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you so much. What a pleasure it has well, been listening. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting we're getting stalled here in, in our yeah. in our, in our yeah. time lapse, but I can tell you it's um, been. A, I could sit and just say, just tell me more. Like I'm like a sponge, like soaking all of this in what you're yeah. telling me, and um, and it's a pleasure. I, I mean, I I hope to meet you someday personally, not for work related, um, or for you to be work related, but I hope to meet you and. and well, be the able- first, first cup of coffee's on you. Well, well, I, this is what I do. You First cup come, of coffee's on you. Come up to my Riley's yeah. and you can have a cup but of yeah, coffee I'm, on I'm me up. anytime. Okay, I'm up there enough. And again, thank you for allowing us to share our passion. All our volunteers are are there, and you know, it's Jay. You know, when you say when you say it must be rewarding. To me, that's kind of a loaded statement in the fact that. It's rewarding because you're doing it for the reward. If Does that make sense? Is that you're kind of doing it for the positive feedback or that you're making a difference? We do it, all our volunteers do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm. Helping our fellow man. Um, it's something we can do. When, when I researched the agency, there's no one else doing this model. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking with a couple of friends of mine. I said, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Mm. And so... It, it is, we're glad we can make a difference. Um, but tomorrow is, a, is another day. And, you know, with, with the active shooter and active hostile events going on across the country, you know, the, the need is not, going to, is not going to stop. And for allowing me to share our passion and what we do. And a lot of people say, oh, petting a dog make a difference. You're not petting the dog. You're working with a crisis intervention peer support specialist who has a dog and I will, I will leave you with two mixed metaphors of what we do. One is there, we're the Walmart greeter of trauma. And we're the used car salesman of trauma. We meet you at that door to hopefully guide you through your journey. And if need be, we bait and switch like a used car salesman to a higher level of care without you objecting. Mm. Be well and stay safe. You too. Well. Thank you. By combining crisis intervention peer support specialists with dogs as partners and utilizing zero-hour behavioral health management techniques, Brad and his group of canine first responders provide an unprecedented, progressive approach to addressing the effects of trauma. This new model was first proven effective at the Sandy Hook Elementary School tragedy. Since then, canine first responders have been dispatched and deployed to a number of significant critical incidents nationwide. That includes the Boston Marathon bombing, the Las Vegas concert shooting, and the January 6th siege on our U.S. Capitol. They were also right here in Weymouth, Mass., providing support following a shooting incident where Police Sergeant Michael Chesna and innocent bystander Vera Adams were both killed. Without question, these incidents are all tragic, 
We thank canine first responders for their compassionate presence. Until next time. Until next time.